This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. If you're going to class, you can head out. I have to say that so far what I've learned is that Marvin and Mark are not quitters. And if you want to listen to the service, go to the cry room. I know you say that. You never say that about Gary or Grant. <laughs> oh, man. I'm a little nervous now, Marvin. You have your Bibles. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. I feel this overwhelming weight this morning, in all honesty, of not being able to pull this off because it's big. It's big. Look at these slides. Next one. The only reason I labeled that is so you'd recognize it. Most people would recognize the beta-lactam ring there, but that's penicillin. Get those at Costco. This is the Alaskan air flight. Alexander Graham Bell. Okay. Here's my favorite. I, I don't know what this gal's vacuuming, but it, I don't think that was the reason behind it. Um, just, you know, interesting question. Oh, by the way, you realize that James Spangler, he was a janitor from Ohio, invented the vacuum sweeper. You knew that, right? That, yeah, it was, he made it out of a soapbox, a broom handle, a uh, pillowcase, and an electric motor. Yeah. And he went house to house selling it. To, to different people. And one lady that bought it, a lady named Susan, was just enthralled with it. And her husband was more enthralled with it, which makes me wonder about his man card. <laughs> but anyway, he, he thought, oh, this is great. And he actually improved on it. And he got this James Spangler guy, James Murray Spangler. I often wondered, did they call him Murray? Murray, is that your invention? Anyway, so he, he did, and he improved on it. He, he got a production line for the whole thing and uh, just made a mint of it. He bought the patent from James Spangler. Yeah, his wife's name, Susan, her last name was Hoover. You might recognize it. Her husband's name was William Hoover. Yeah, and so that's how you got the vacuum suite. And now you know the rest of the story, right? Okay, so what's the, what's the greatest invention that you've seen in your time? This is mine. Okay, anesthesia. Okay? <laughs> That's the greatest invention of all time, right there. I'm just telling you because if you've ever had surgery, this is, yeah, anesthesia is great. And it's, it's, it's advanced. It's, and this is Ralph, your anesthesiologist. So, that was my greatest invention. I know Bob's. Bob Sweets was the toilet. Yeah, so. <laughs> so there's a lot of great things that have happened out there. Am I right? Yes. Um, if you were born between 1980 or in 1886 and you lived until 1970, and you think, well, that's not. I mean, it's 84 years of age. This is what, these are just some of the things you got to see. Horses to cars. 
okay? Uh, that, you, that's, that was your mode of transportation. Uh, 74, sorry. What did I say? 84, I'm sorry. Uh, till 70 and 14, it's 84, isn't it? Yeah. Where's Steve when you need him? Anyway, it doesn't matter. One of those numbers, you're old, but you saw these things. You got to see telephones move from what you saw with Alexander Graham Bell into the cell phone that you have in your pocket. You got to see the light bulb that was invented. Now, the light bulb was invented in 1880, but do you realize that by 1925, only half, at least, of Americans had electricity. Somehow, electricity has something to do with the light bulbs. I don't know. Commercially, avail commercially available antibiotics. You got to see computers come in. You got to see from the Wright brothers' flight to the landing on the moon. Do you know how short a time that was? 1903 was the Wright brothers. We landed on the moon in 1969. The magic number is? 66. <laughs> Maybe I should be lecturing math today. <laughs> in 66 years, we went from the Wright brothers to landing on the moon. If you lived in that time period, you got to see it. The gas-powered tractor changed everything in agriculture. And finally, radio and television. Uh, black and white TVs in 1936. In 1953 was the first available color TV that you could purchase, and it cost $1,500. In today's money, that's 15000 The color TV. If you lived in this time period. That doesn't count living through World War I, the Depression, World War II, the Korean conflict, Vietnam, and seeing JFK assassinated. It was a tremendous time, wasn't it, if you lived in that era. Can I remind you that today when we look at the scripture, it's not like we're going to invent anything. But like Gary said last week, this is this literary masterpiece that when you look at it, it's almost like your mind is absolutely blown when you go from riding a horse to town to driving an automobile or seeing the Wright brothers take off in a very short flight, by the way, to 66 years later, we put a person on the moon. And that's what we want to look at today, because Paul's trying to say something here, and I want you to see, and I hope I can get this across, I'm burdened with it, I'll be honest with you, of what Paul's trying to say here, when he gets this word, and I want you to see how all of a sudden when you dig in the scripture, how it changes from black and white to color. And that's what we want to see today in Paul's message. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have gifted us with your word. And Father, it is a literal masterpiece. Father, open our eyes to what you'd have us to see and hear. Father, for the grace to try to explain through this. Father, for the mercy that we would trust, that we would rely on you. I'm going to pray that in Jesus' name and amen. Well, we're going to finish up Paul's letter today, and uh, you'll remember that when we started off in chapter 1, in fact, flip back there real quick only because I want you to see this. 
says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Keep that in mind. He was encouraging them. You'll remember that. He said that, you know, you guys have partnered with the right thing. You've partnered with the gospel. In fact, God's going to complete what he started in you. And he goes on to tell them, he said, don't worry about me being in prison. In fact, my imprisonment has done what? Do you remember? Let's advance the gospel. All right. And he goes on to talk about that this was going to work out for his deliverance. And then he implores them in verse 27, which is one of his headliner statements. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he begins to explain as he goes through his letter about what that looks like. He talks about it in starting in verse 18. He pleads for this unity uh, to have the same mind of Christ, this humble obedience. And then by the time he gets to chapter 3, he kind of lets this uh, percolate and then bam, he just lays it on him and he says, finally, my brothers, verse 1, chapter 3, rejoice where? In the Lord. Here it is. Here's the, here's the beginning of it when he's talking about this joy and this rejoicing and this life worthy of the gospel. Uh, he gives his personal testimony and he said the key to it, the basis, the, the, the foundation is rejoicing in the Lord. Not the other things that are around them, but rather in Christ alone. He reminds them that they are the circumcision, that they are God's chosen people, the covenant people. Why? Because as we worship God in the spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. And the result was, look there in, in chapter 3, uh, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, what? Gain Christ and be what? Found in him. Found in Christ. And the result was, verse 9, the rest of it, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 12, we went on, and you'll remember we kind of had this top and tail where he talked about in 3.1 about being uh, rejoicing in Christ, and then in 4.1 he talks about standing firm in the Lord. And we remember that we talked about standing firm in the Lord, and standing firm is not the same as what? Do you remember? Standing still. It's not the same. In fact, this awaiting of the Lord is an active thing. And he said that we press on toward the prize, that we follow those examples that God has put in our lives and avoid uh, those who dwell on the earthly, earthly things, remembering that our citizenship is in heaven. So he says that we wait, therefore, on the return of Christ, and then he will change us into his glorious body. The last time in chapter 4, starting in verse 2, we, we talked about the peace that Paul pointed them toward that they so desperately needed. And you'll remember that Paul pointed out three things, and he said that if you're going to have peace, first of all, you need to recognize that your peace is always going to be threatened, and you need to confront it head on. And the second thing that he told us, for, basically, was that you had to acknowledge that peace 
is a spiritual issue, and it needed to be approached by spiritual action. But the result of that, if you'll remember, that you saw in the rest of that, was that we would be touched by the supernatural. In other words, he said that there would be this gift of peace from God for us, for his glory. And then secondly, that he would guard our hearts and our mind where? Do you remember? In Christ Jesus. Anybody seeing a pattern here? And do you remember the picture that he gave us was of this citadel that God places around your heart and your mind, and it's guarded 24-7 by his guards. And then he goes on with this great promise, and he says, and the God of peace will be with you. That was, meanwhile, back at the castle, while it's being guarded, God is with you, the God of peace. But today, starting in chapter 4, verse 10, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, look at the last uh, three verses, the final verses of the letter, starting in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, turn back to 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Do you see how he ended his letter the same way he began it? by encouraging them. And this phrase is over and over and over in his letter about being in Christ Jesus. What a great encouragement. In today's passage, Paul is very confident. He's rejoicing, but he adds in this different word that we haven't seen in his letter. It's the only time that he throws it out there, but we need to understand what he's saying because in his current state, don't ever forget the man was in a Roman prison. But listen to what he writes. In fact, I think he stuns his writer at this point and he challenges us as we read it. Paul's circumstances, Paul's history, Paul's destiny were all on the line here. And in fact, if you look at Acts chapter 9, and you don't have to turn there, it should be up here. But the Lord said to him, this is when Ananias went to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer. For my sake. Can I remind you, Paul did suffer, Paul was suffering, and he will continue to suffer for Christ. But look what he writes in verse 11. Remembering where Paul has been, is been, is going. Now that I'm speaking, not that, get it right, Kim. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be 
content. The word that Paul throws out there that I think is absolutely stunning is Paul says, I'm content. Paul emphasizes in the midst of what you and I would call an absolute nightmare that he's content. Let me, let me tell you some way to mess with somebody's mind. I, not that I would ever do this with you. But these are just outside things you can do when you're at the triangle. <laughs> when someone asks you platonically, and we do this as Americans all the time, I've never figured out why people come up and they hit you and they say, how are you? I was fine until you hit me. But they ask you platonically, how are you? You ever had that happen? How you doing? Well, they don't really care, trust me. But if you really want to mess with them, look at them square in the eye and say, I'm content. That will blow their mind because they've never heard that from anybody. In fact, it'll open up a great conversation. Seriously? You're content? Yeah, I'm content. And this is what Paul did when he was writing this letter. Can you imagine reading that? And they know where he is. They know where he's been. And Paul says, I'm content. Paul points out at least three things about contentment, three characteristics that I think we need to explore. And let's walk through it slowly, okay? Number one, I want you to understand that by default, by default, Contentment is a learned state of being. All right, let's back up to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, for you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Um, he said that uh, I rejoiced again. Do you see it where? In the Lord. He's, he's, he said this in chapter 3, verse 1. He said this in chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 9. He said this in chapter 3, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said it as a bookend in 4.1. In 4, Stand firm in the Lord. He said it in 4.4. 4, Rejoice in the Lord. He said it in 4.7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heights, hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now he says it again in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. Are you seeing what he's trying to tell them? What he's trying to tell us? But he goes on and he says, I'm content. Well, how do you know this? Well, if you haven't picked up on it by now, He's already told you it's about being in the Lord. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How do you learn contentment? Well, easy. Paul told you. In the Lord, by experience. Paul had experienced this, these things. Christ was with him, and Paul was in him. Therefore, Paul was content. 
He rejoiced in the Lord. He stood firm in the Lord. He was content in the Lord. And can I remind you that we are not born content? How do I know that? If you've ever had a baby in the house at three in the morning, they let you know they are not content. They're hungry. If you've which once this child grows up and you take a vacation and you go to say to see the big mouse and you're driving to Orlando or wherever the other one is, Los Angeles. It goes like this from the back seat. How much longer? When are we going to get there? I'm hungry. I have to pee. What do you mean the hotel doesn't have a pool? Mm -hmm. You see, when things don't go our way, when we're hungry, we're not content. We complain. We blame. We cry. We literally show that we are not content. Our actions always, always, always tell on us. Let me give you the definition of being content. Content means pleased with your situation and not hoping for change or improvement. That's content. You're satisfied, you're unworried, you're untroubled, you're at ease. Paul had lived in all sorts of circumstances. Look at it in verse 12. How to abound, have plenty, abundance. You think, well, it's easy to be content there. Oh, no, no. You and I all know people that live way over our standard of living who are not content. There's never enough. But then he flips the coin over, and it gets drastic. Paul says he's been brought low, brought low. He was brought low in hunger. And that's not just, you know, it's 15 minutes till 12 and I'm feeling hungry. No, that is in hunger and in need. But yet he'd learned the secret being found in Christ. Contentment by default is a learned behavior. But number two, I want you to see what he says. If contentment by default is a learned behavior, he also says contentment by desire seeks out others to encourage. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership. Do you remember that? Chapter 1. You've entered into a partnership with me. He brings it up again. In giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help uh, for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. Oh, by the way, why? He's content. But I seek the fruit that does what? Increases to your credit. I receive full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul shares his contentment 
with those in Philippi expressing his thanks. You can tell he's content because he has no desires for himself. He's satisfied. He's not seeking a change for his condition or his circumstances. He's saying, I have everything I need. He was trying to encourage them. Look at verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours. Contentment by desire seeks to improve others' situation. Do you see it? But finally, there's a third thing he says. Number three, remember, contentment by default is what? It's learned. Contentment by desire seeks others to encourage. But number three, contentment by design is found only in Christ. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice how Paul assures them then, but he also assures us now that God will supply our, their, every need. Remember, Paul's in prison. But in verse 11, he says he has no need. He says he's content. In verse 17, he says he's not seeking a gift for himself. In verse 18, he says he has all the payment he needs and more. God has supplied his every need, even in prison, and he assures them that God will do the same for them. In fact, he leaves no doubt. Look at it again, verse 19. And my God will supply. Do you see that? But how? Well, he answers that too. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. Stop right there. Paul knew, you know, I know, but do we believe it? God lacks for nothing. All is his. He has no equal. He needs no counsel. He can supply our every need. He says, according to his riches in glory. But read on. Where are these riches in glory? They're in Christ Jesus. Do you see the picture that he painted there? He not only assures them that God is going to meet their every need, just like they had met his, He's going to do it through his riches and glory. But the picture that he paints, the way that it's structured there is God has deposited his riches in glory into his son. Do you see that? Read it again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. And where are they? They're in Christ Jesus. That's where he deposited them. Now, do you see where it starts to come alive? Look back at chapter 3, 8 and 9. I counted everything lost. Why? Because I wanted the surpassing, to know the surpassing, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? 
in order that I might gain Christ and be found where? And what's there? God's riches in glory. Do you see it? To be found in Christ. Therefore, Paul can say, I can rejoice in the Lord because that's where God's riches in glory are. I can press on toward the goal uh, and the prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus because that's where his riches and glories are. I can stand firm in the Lord because that's where his riches and his glories are. My mind is guarded against all of these evil things in Christ Jesus because that's where his riches and glories are. And now in verse 19, he says, I'm going to meet your every need in Christ Jesus. God was going to meet that need. Now, do you understand the phrase in Christ Jesus? He opened the book with it. He finished the book of it. Wow. A literal masterpiece, Gary. But, but, Southern Illinois, it's four letter, four syllable word, but. We skipped a verse, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Here we go. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, let me warm you up. We've already learned about contentment. By default, it's learned. By desire, it's shared to encourage others. By design, can only be found in Christ Jesus. And then there's verse 13. Verse 13 has been ripped so out of context Pastor Grant will tell you that this sells great as a refrigerator magnet. It looks wonderful on your stationery when you write a thank you note. But it's become this battle cry of Christians over some element of loss. Don't be fooled by the popular locker room read of verse 413. It's so misrepresented. People have latched onto this verse like it's They take Jesus by the collar and we're going to throw him into the game for a touchdown. You know what I'm saying? Okay, that's not so much my question. My question is how come he wasn't on the starting squad? All right? What was he doing sitting on the bench? I'd have had Jesus in there right up front. He could throw the pass and catch it. In difficult times, we've decided that we can whistle in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we're going to have victory. And the emphasis, unfortunately, is on I can do all things. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Context, Gary. Context, right? Look back up. Verse 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. The man was in prison. For I've learned in whatever situation, that's a whatever situation. That I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. Why? Because he was. I know how to abound. Why? Because he had. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Context. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. It should be here. 
with far, this is Paul talking about himself, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received the hands of the Jews of the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once uh, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people. Dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger. There's danger. Do you see this? Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through my many uh, uh, sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure of me and my anxiety for all the churches. Tell me, does that sound like a touchdown to you? No, no. Verse 13 is not what Paul could do. Verse 13 explains how Paul endured it. Do you see that? It's a direct reflection of verses 11 and 12. Verse 13 is the game changer. Verse 13 is the emphasis. It's the secret behind contentment. But here's where it gets really fun. You're thinking, how could it get any better? Oh, it does. This, hopefully, this moved it, Gary, from black and white to color TV for me. Take your finger, this finger, and put it on verse 19. And my God will supply uh, every need of yours according to his riches in glory in. Do you say the word in? We've talked about this multiple times now. You should be with me. In Christ Jesus. Now, move it up to verse 13. I can do all things through him. Okay, stop right there. Do you say that little word through? Guess what? In the Greek, it's in. It's in. It doesn't change the meaning of the scripture. It moves it from black and white to color. Literally, this is how the verse reads. I have strength for all things in him who strengthens me. In him. Who's him? In Christ. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Paul gives you the secret. Listen to what John MacArthur said about this. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13, is an expression of confidence in one, is not an expression of confidence in oneself. Instead, it is an expression of sufficiency in Christ. No matter what happens to us, we are in Christ. And that's enough. If we are wealthy and prospering, we are in Christ. If we are poor and suffering, we are still in Christ. Ultimately, both economic statuses are of little consequence. What matters is that we are in Jesus. For Jesus alone can strengthen us to resist the temptations that uniquely attend wealth as well as those that uniquely attend poverty. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Everything we do must be in and through our Lord Jesus Christ.
Well, did Paul come up with this by his own? Oh, no. Look at John 15, verses 4 through 5 up here. Jesus taught the same thing when he instructed his disciples. In fact, in the midst of what he's saying here, this is, there's this urgency that Jesus is talking to him. And he says to them, abide where? <laughs> in me. And I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from you, you can do nothing. Jesus taught this in him. Paul just emphasizes it. The, the vital union, the vital identification of you and I being with Christ, in Christ, is the secret to contentment. The one who lived the perfect life for you and me, abide in him. The one who died for our sins, Jesus said, abide in him. The one who rose to victory over all of our circumstances, we abide in him that we might endure our circumstances. Christ taught it. Paul emphasized it. I can do all things in him who strengthens me, no matter what situation he had, verse 11, no matter what the circumstances were, verse 12. He had no need, verses 11, verses 17, verses 18. Why? Because he counted everything else as rubbish in order that he might know Christ and be found in him. So what about you and I? At the end of the day, I'll only tell you the contentment, the contentment issue is not a secret. It's not. Paul laid it out for you. Chapter 4, verse 13. In fact, contentment is not really uh, the whole issue of the promise in verse 19. At the end of the day, contentment issue is do you understand verse 13 and do you believe verse 19? There, there it is. Do you understand that I can do all things in him, through him, who strengthens me, and that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glories in Christ Jesus? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you have faith in it? Rob, do you rely on it? That's your word. I love that. We struggle with being content, don't we? There's never enough income. There's never enough time in the day. I don't like the people that I work with in the office. The strife within the family. My health is not like it was when I was 18. <laughs> Hit a nerve there, Pastor Grant. My kids don't listen to me. They're going to tax my ammo. My dog doesn't like me anymore. We're not content. Yet, would you trade places with Paul? Beaten, in a Roman prison, shipwrecked, left for dead, all because of his ministry in Christ. Brought low, living in hunger, living in need, but somehow he was content. Why? Because of the riches of glory deposited in Christ that met his every need. He believed it, he trusted it, he relied on it alone 
in Christ Jesus. You see, the issue has never been and will never be our circumstances. How do I know that? We live in a fallen world. It's a fallen world. Paul lived in it. We live in it. He's telling them then. He's telling us now. It's not the external circumstances that define contentment. Do you see that? It's not your circumstances that define contentment. It's your internal position in Christ Jesus. Contentment is a heart issue. It's a description of the heart, independent of your circumstances. Circumstances only expose your heart. If we live in Christ, if we rejoice in Christ, if we stand firm in Christ, therefore, verse 20 means everything. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me ask you, are you content? Do you see yourself in your circumstances or in Christ alone? Can we say with Paul in verse 13, I can do all things through him, in him? Who strengthens me? Do I rely on verse 19 that God will supply my every need according to his riches in glory that he's deposited in Christ Jesus? If you can, then you're content. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word is rich beyond compare. And I pray, Father, that uh, we'd not just hear it and see it, but, Father, we would live it. I confess I live in the world of circumstances instead of living in the reality of Christ. And we pray with all my heart that... Um, we would not see ourselves in our circumstances, but we would see ourselves in you. Because in you, we can be content. And we thank you that you deposited those riches and glory for us in your son, Christ Jesus. And amen.